This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we have with us, I think, the foremost scholar on the history of Congress and the contemporary nature of congressional debates and politics in our society today, Julian Zelizer. Julian's also a good friend and really one of the leading uh, figures in our society today, bringing historical knowledge to contemporary policy debates. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen Julian on CNN, read his pieces in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and elsewhere. Uh, He is uh, officially the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. Uh, He's the author and editor of 19 books on American political history. In fact, the new one might be the 20th. So uh, I'm feeling very unproductive relative to Julian uh, these days. Uh, It's impossible to list all of his works. Some of my favorites include Taxing America, Wilbur D. Mills, Congress and the State, 1945 to 75, which probably amounts to more than half of what I know about that period in Congress. Uh, Julian also wrote, I think, one of the best books on Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and the congressional politics surrounding it, uh, The Fierce Urgency of Now. Recently co-authored with Kevin Cruz, A Wonderful History of American Society Since 1974, Fault Lines, A History of the United States. And most recently, the book we'll spend a fair amount of time talking about today, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. It's a brand new book that's just come out and available everywhere and getting a lot of attention as it well deserves. Julian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. So before we turn to our discussion with Julian, as always, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? The Sour Grapes. (laughs) Oh boy, I can't wait to hear this. Uh, Let's hear it, Zachary. It is sour, so sour, watching the Congress burst at the seams on live TV and the votes, the votes pop up in the same line. It was tempting, so tempting, to believe the man screaming at midnight to empty seats and believing the lies on C-SPAN, oh, it seems so sweet to them to forget morality. It is sour, so sour, to think of that year and the chaos that began to flow from the seats of the minority until there was a volcano. It is tempting, so tempting, to stare at the photo in the history book, the Georgian with a baby face and a pulpit on the floor of the Congress, and want to tear it up or fold it into an ironic rose. It is easy, so easy to imagine it used to be better, that we can just go back, but I remember that when I was born, it was the same flag behind the man on the empty floor of the house. It is easy, too easy, to slip into the dichotomy, to slip into the good and the bad, ignoring the speeches and the condemnations and the regrets and the existence of a national conscience. The existence of conscience does not disappear with the sour grapes. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about this contradiction between uh, the moral the moral nature of our society and how we can stay uh, committed to our values, while also the very petty politics that are beginning to define us and have defined us for decades. Well, that's a perfect spot to turn to, to Julian. Um, Julian, you've written so much about Congress and American policymaking, particularly uh, after World War II. Um, there have always been petty partisan politics, but it was different during the Cold War years, particularly the 50s and 60s, wasn't it? 
It was very different. And it's often hard to explain if there's partisanship all the time, how can it be different in one period from another? Or how could two parties be partisan in different ways? But during the Cold War era, you had parties with strong positions, but members of Congress, especially the leadership, would always balance their partisanship with the needs of governance. This was a commitment most of them had, uh, and the needs of the institution to just keep it healthy, keep it functional. And in an era when many members would keep uh, stay in office for much of their careers, these were values that they balanced and partisanship was always checked at some level. And that's very different than what we've seen since the 1980s. And before we get into that that shift uh, that you date to 1989 and document so well in your book, uh, what were the consequences of what in a, what you've described as a Congress that that had a certain leadership consensus? What what were its achievements and what were its limitations? Well, the limitations uh, during that pre 70s period, there was a conservative coalition of committee leaders that had the support of the speakers and the majority leaders. This was. Southern Democrats and Republicans, who when they didn't want things like civil rights legislation, they were able to block it. Uh, And another negative part of that era is a lot of it was behind closed doors. There wasn't a lot of sunshine on the institution or accountability. On the positive side, there were bursts, real bursts of legislative productivity, which in retrospect are hard to even imagine today, whether it's the 1930s or 60s. Uh, And when the institution was needed in times of crisis, it could function. It was functional. Uh, it was not sitting still as crises fell uh, onto, the, onto the nation. So, so I think those were the pluses and minuses of the period. And, and it is worth remembering that although you had partisan disputes, uh, you didn't have threats to shut down the government every few months as, as we've had most recently, correct? No, absolutely. A lot of the normal routine processes of government, whether it was passing a budget or whether it was Supreme Court uh, confirmations in the Senate, happened. Those were not part of the partisan battles. And so not only were people limited in how far they would go in destroying an opponent or in destroying um, you know, key parts of a negotiation, just parts of the process weren't even included uh, in the competition. And that was important because you didn't have to worry about passing a budget or shutting down the government in a way that you do today. Right, right. It does It does seem like a, a history so distant from our current practice. W- one of the real contributions and one of the, the pieces of your new book I really enjoyed, Julian, was your focus on the paradox of the reforms of the 1970s. In many ways, a reaction, as you document and as others have documented, to the, the, the racial and racist hold that Southern Democrats had on Congress and the limitations on sunshine and transparency post-civil rights movement, post-Watergate, there were efforts to open up Congress, the Watergate babies, as you call them. Uh, one of the things you document is how that actually contributed to more partisan disruption. Can you explain that? Well, yeah. So after Watergate in Vietnam, there's a big push by Democrats to change the way that Congress works. And that includes a number of reforms from reforms such as sunshine uh, rules, like putting television cameras on the floor of the House so that people could see what members of Congress do. And so there was some kind of accountability to ethics rules, which are put into place to make sure 
that members couldn't do whatever they wanted financially and that there was disclosure of where they were making money and where they were getting money from. And the ambitions were really to move beyond this horrendous crisis that unfolded in 1974. Uh, but what happened was that, and, and not always anticipated, the new generation of Republicans led by Gingrich saw these as mechanisms for partisan warfare. Uh, rather than mechanisms for making the institution better. And they proved to be pretty devastating in a number of ways. And, and, and that to me was, was really a surprise in the book, I have to say, even though I, I thought I knew this story, the extent to which these efforts, uh, for example, the church committee and uh, campaign finance reform, the ways they were weaponized uh, by partisans like Newt Gingrich, that, that was really quite striking to me. C- can you give us more of those details? Yeah, well, you think about it. Uh, Gingrich is elected in 78 to the House. He starts in 79. Republicans had been out of power in the House since 1955 uh, in the Senate as well. So most Republicans were frustrated. They felt they would never really have a lot of uh, influence in the institution. And so Gingrich's central argument in his campaigns, in his early speeches in Congress was that Democrats were a corrupt establishment. They were tyrannical. They were unfair. They they brutalized the opposition. And he understood that in this era we're talking about, that argument would really hold. Uh, But then the weapons that he used to make that uh, a fulfilling uh, prophecy, so to speak, uh, were all these reforms. So one example Uh, The House had televised their proceedings, and uh, every speech was being covered by a new network called C-SPAN. And so Gingrich said, perfect. And in 1984, he goes on the floor at the end of every day with his allies, and he delivers these blistering speeches about Democrats, saying they're weak on defense, they don't really care about the security of the nation, they're letting communists run amok. And, uh, and, and he'd actually name specific members and ask them to respond. And if you were watching on C-SPAN, you were watching the sunshine, you heard nothing. It sounded like the Democrats were guilty. But really, no one was in the chamber at that time of the day, and the camera was only focused on the speaker. Uh, and that was really a, a big moment for Gingrich. And many Democrats were taken aback and, and thought these were below-the-belt kind of attacks on the patriotism of members. So, so that's one example of, of how the sunshine was turned into a partisan bludgeon. Why did establishment Republican figures who you talk about in your book, Robert Mitchell, Bob Dole, Ronald Reagan, for that matter, why did they put up with this? Because they benefited from the older system, didn't they? Well, they wanted to be part of the majority. And so they had been influential Republicans through this conservative alliance, but but that was different than controlling the chamber. And they felt that they were this uh, embattled minority. And then when Reagan was elected in 1980, the world changed for them. And it seemed like conservatism was rising in the Senate. Republicans take control of the Senate, and the House is this last bastion of democratic power and liberalism. So in the early 80s, when Gingrich is shaking things up and arguing that Republicans have to go far, uh, some Republican leaders are at least listening. They know he's toxic. None of them want to publicly associate themselves with someone who's seen as a new Joe McCarthy. But the story I tell is gradually a lot of these leaders 
like Bob Michael, the House Minority Leader, start to echo his rhetoric. George H.W. Bush starts to bring in some of Gingrich's themes into the 1988 campaign. They can't resist. They think they can control a Gingrich, but ultimately they want power and they like his promise and they go there uh, in an effort to change the way that Washington worked. Uh, Why did the Democrats fail to respond effectively to Gingrich? That's a a big question uh, in, in the book. And I think Uh, There were two things that I saw. One were were Democrats, because they had been in power for so long and because they were comfortable uh, in this system, they didn't really have a grasp of how much things were changing, how much conservatism was changing, the conservative movement was changing, the nature of the GOP. People like Jim Wright, who becomes speaker in 87, didn't really get cable television and thought investigative journalism post-Watergate was important, but it wasn't going to really change the way that Americans were consuming uh, their politics. And so they were kind of a, an older party uh, that was caught off guard uh, and not fully um, uh, cognizant of where this was all going. And, and the second reason is, you know, their partisanship was going to always be checked. Democrats can never be quite as ruthless as Republicans because Democrats, certainly in the 80s, but even today, need government. They are a party that believes in government as a central piece of their agenda. And so a partisanship that ultimately renders government dysfunctional doesn't work for Democrats, where for Republicans, it fit the Reagan philosophy, and and they were much more willing to go further than Democrats could even imagine. It's striking you say that because at the same time, as, as your scholarship and others has shown, I mean, Republicans rely very heavily on federal subsidies, land, business subsidies, military subsidies. And Gingrich himself, right, was an advocate of you know more, more spending on the military, more spending on space, uh, various other ideas. He had some of them kind of crazy ideas, actually. Uh, so, so is that more style than substance, the difference between the two parties? Well, there is, I think, they're both. There's a, obviously a level of hypocrisy in Republican rhetoric, um, but a lot of the, the kinds of measures that are hardest to pass in American history are often these areas that Democrats, certainly since the 30s, have been more invested in. I mean, historically, it's a lot easier to get boosts of spending, for example, for military contracting or even corporate subsidies than it is for social safety net programs. Uh, sure. There's just a big difference. And so if you're going to have an institution capable of having negotiations, having interaction, having legislation work, uh, it really renders that uh, not impossible, but extraordinarily difficult, where I think some of these other areas are pretty insulated. They're not integral to a lot of the debates of these periods. And, and as, I was, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, especially in the current moment, is this difference also a difference around race, that the, the domestic issues that require a coalition uh, have, re- require a multiracial coalition and serve a multiracial public? Uh, and, and do you see Gingrich playing the race card from the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, that's always controversial. If there's one issue, he will quickly... Uh, respond to it's the accusation that he did that and and he's very it's interesting it's it's the one you can accuse him or or argue that he's done all these terrible things but that's the one he'll respond i supported an mlk uh birthday early on that he goes after white politicians as much as african-american politicians 
But there's tons of examples in his career where he's certainly tapping into this Republican rhetoric about issues such as welfare or civil rights policy. Uh, that's at least capitalizing on that white backlash politics, even if he himself uh, is is not a, a believer in it down deep. It's always hard to tell, obviously, um, but it, it's hard to separate him from from a party that has made this pretty important uh, to a lot of their uh, rhetoric since the eighties. How does how do Gingrich's actions alter the regional appeals of the different parties? How does it change the uh, the regional divides within the country? Well, it's uh, one of the changes that happens from that earlier period we discussed is that the South becomes Republican. The South had been a bastion of Democratic power, and Gingrich is part of this generation of Republicans in the 70s. Uh, he had been a Rockefeller Republican, meaning a moderate Republican. He had been a Nixon supporter, thought Richard Nixon was a great president who's trying to build a big coalition for his party. And uh, at the local level in in Georgia uh, near Atlanta, he's trying to you know be part of this effort to build Republican Party politics in a heavily Democratic area. His his first opponent to who he loses in '74 and '76 is Jack Flint, who's a classic old uh, conservative Democrat, especially on race issues, uh, but. Eventually, he wins when Flint retires. And so he's part of this wave. And the media in the 70s often identified him as an exciting voice of the new Republican South. And that realignment is, I think, uh, central to the story of party, party politics um, since that period. And it weighs the Republican Party to the conservative side uh, and, and makes more of the moderate people and moderate voices less of an influence in the GOP. Right. They get crowded out by Gingrich in a sense. Um, your book centers really around the overthrow or the forced resignation of Democratic Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, um, and and what follows from that. Uh, but I wanted to extend our discussion a little bit further. I, I remember when uh, Gingrich was in Austin and I had the fortune or misfortune, however you, you're, you want to term it, of hosting him. Uh, and one of the topics that was really raw with him, uh, this is when Obama was president, was his relationship with Bill Clinton. And uh, first of all, how does he get Clinton impeached? And then why does he end up being the one who leaves office, not Bill Clinton? Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, Gingrich is a, a foe of Bill Clinton. And of course, the Republicans retake control of Congress in 1994. And uh, Gingrich becomes speaker. And that's an important moment because it basically delivers on the promise he's made throughout the 1980s that he was the one who could do this. And part of what he does is he characterizes Bill Clinton as a far left Democrat, you know, proposing health care plans that will allow socialism to essentially take over the country. Uh, and then the Republicans after that takeover devote a lot of time to investigation and uh, numerous investigations continue into the administration. Uh, there's a book by someone named Steve Gillen uh, that argues behind the scenes, Gingrich is, is enamored with Bill Clinton to some extent, and in 97 is trying to work on a deficit reduction package with him that would include cuts in Social Security and Medicare. But ultimately, all that falls apart because the Republicans moved to impeach the president. 
And uh, that happens in 1998. It revolves around President Clinton, uh, who was investigated for multiple things, perjuring himself about an affair that he had with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. And Gingrich is the point person in all of this as Speaker of the House. And it culminates in 1998 in December when the House is getting ready to vote um, on the articles of impeachment. Republicans were angry because they didn't do well in the midterm elections and they thought they would. And many House Republicans are angry with Gingrich and they believe he got them into this whole mess and it wasn't working. And they were also unhappy with him because he was having an affair at the time. Uh, and so it wasn't really great to have the head of your party in the middle of a personal relationship when that was the center of what they were saying President Clinton uh, was being impeached about. And so he is forced to step down. And so he falls after a few years as speaker, a very Shakespearean ending, uh, given he really launches his career bringing down another speaker. And I remember thinking uh, at that point, and, and even thinking this in 2008, 2009, long after that, that that, that was the end of of Gingrich. How did he resurrect himself after that? You link him to Trump. Of course, you opened the book with the possibility of him having been chosen as Trump's vice presidential running mate even. Well, look, uh, A, the Washington he hated so much proved to be a very fertile ground. He, he does a lot of consulting uh, and makes a lot of money and works in the Washington think tank slash consulting world. He runs for president in 2012, unsuccessfully with Kellyanne Conway uh, running his campaign. And he becomes a presence in this conservative media world, which really takes form after my book, after he's already made himself known. And he becomes a frequent uh, contributor and commentator on Fox News and many of these other sites, which, again, it's, it's part of a Washington that provides a home for ex-politicians. So you know, he, he survives in all this. And then when President Trump comes along, there's a kindred spirit who's running uh, for the Oval Office. He's a finalist for the vice presidency, doesn't get it, but he really sees himself and Trump as very similar kinds of people and politicians. And, and since being elected, he has been one of his most vocal supporters. He's written several books on the Trump presidency as a transformative one. And anytime now President Trump does something controversial, it's a pretty good bet that uh, he will either be on Fox or Twitter talking about why it was actually something good rather than bad that you just saw, including uh, the uh, interview with Chris Wallace on Fox Television. Right, right. Yeah, he was. He he tweeted. I saw that it, that, that Trump was brilliant in his interview with Chris Wallace. He seemed to be the only person who thought that. Um, to to what extent, Julian, is there therefore continuity from where your book reaches its its sweet spot in in the eighties to the present? Is this the same dynamic we're seeing in Congress today? Yes, for sure. And I started. I wrote most of the book before uh, Donald Trump was a candidate, let alone president. And for me, uh, besides the story and the history, I'm interested in. The Tea Party was really on my mind, which you know came into office in 2010 and was doing all sorts of things that caught people off guard, like threatening to not raise the debt ceiling, which would send us into default uh, right. just during budget negotiations. And, and my 
argument in the end was, yes, there's immense continuity from the time Gingrich cements his role in the Republican Party through today. And we need to understand where we are in 220, not as some aberrational moment, not as a moment produced simply by the president, but really a, a long-term change in Republican politics, which, which makes people like Gingrich, the senior statesman, really rather than a Jeb Bush or someone like that. Uh, and it's deeply ingrained in where most of the Republicans are today. And that's uh, kind of important to reckon with, especially if people are talking about how will the GOP change. It won't be easy because this has been going on really since the 1980s. And so you're pessimistic this would even change if, as you posited in a piece you wrote for CNN, I think earlier this week or late last week, even if the GOP suffers a devastating loss in this next election, you think this is still hardwired into the Republican Party, particularly the congressional members? Yeah, I mean, it would have to be a loss pretty devastating. And it's not the kind of loss that probably will happen. We don't have landslides like that. Uh, it, you, you really need to reach a point where many members of the party feel that this is not in their interest. The logic of partisanship works against what we've been seeing. Uh, and you also need a generational change that capitalizes on it. Younger members, younger Republicans who who think this is not a way to win power in the long term. And, and so a, a landslide defeat for Republicans is the minimum of what would have to happen. It's the best bet for a real change in the party. But I'm I'm, da- I'm dubious that will happen. And, and even if it happens, it's not a guarantee. I, I just noted that people are saying Tucker Carlson might be, you know, the younger Republican, so to speak, who's next in line to run for president. And that doesn't bode well for those who want the party to change. Right. And it, it, it does seem it's clear what the Democrats need to do on the other side of this. But what does a moderate Republican Running from um, you know a uh, an area, let's say you know a suburb of uh, New York City, a Westchester County, or a suburb of Austin, Texas, w- what should a moderate Republican do? It's very tough. I mean, I assume the way a moderate Republican positions themselves is by aligning themselves with the policies, many of the policies of the administration, which are still pretty uh, mainline Republican policies, deregulation, tax cuts, those sorts of things, and and trying to somehow separate themselves from from the president. That's what moderates are doing. But it's really a hard thing to do. Uh, This is all one package at this point. Most Republican voters uh, support the administration. So moderates put themselves in a really, they're in a tough spot. That's why there's not a lot of them. Um, but there's not a lot of space for what you're saying, and there's not a lot of wiggle room to craft a candidacy based on that. Yeah, I mean, you say that on on the same day that you and I were both reading about you know, Jim Jordan and other um, leaders of the Republican congressional delegation lambasting Dick Cheney's daughter, Lynn Cheney, for having the temerity to criticize Trump's response to the coronavirus. Uh, it's extraordinary the pressure that that even not so moderate Republicans seem to be under. No, for sure. And, and there was there's always a sense like after 2018, the midterms go so poorly. And there are many who are speculating, OK, there's there's the turning point. And then there's the Lincoln project. And everyone's like, OK, now now the change is happening. But but really, I think the story you just told is more indicative of where most of the party is. They're not in a space to change right now. And so that means if you want to be a moderate Republican, it might be better to be a moderate Democrat. Uh, 
Right. Right. So, uh, Julian, we, we always like our podcast to close with some reflections on how this historical scholarship and research is useful for today. You've already done some of that, uh, but we like to be positive also, and it's a somewhat dismal story you're telling here. Uh, assuming, as you do, and as I think we all do, that we need uh, a, a functioning Congress in our society, perhaps more than ever, and that we need a functioning two-party system, what should we be doing as a society? What, what, should, what are the lessons we should be taking from your work? Well, I think from this particular book, there, there is a lesson in that, you know, I tackle this big issue of political polarization that we hear about all the time. And when we talk about it, we usually talk about these grandiose forces that cause polarization, meaning uh, how gerrymandering works, or how voters sort themselves, or how the media is siloed, things that seem beyond our control. And part of what I really wanted to tell was a, a, an actual history of how this happened with a person who pushed things one way rather than another, with a moment uh, when things actually do change pretty dramatically. And in this case, I argue Democrats really fail to stop him. But the fact that you could have individuals who are agents of change and you can have turning point moments, the kind we study all the time, means that can happen today. Uh, it's difficult, uh, but it's not impossible to foresee someone of that skill uh, kind of capitalizing on where we are today from either the Democratic Party or segments of the Republican Party to push a similar change. So I am pessimistic but the book itself shows me polarization moved one way at a very specific time from specific people, and that means it can happen again. And I hope people can see that in the book. The broken can be fixed, and maybe 220 or 221 could be that turning point that we look back on years from today. I, I took away exactly that message, Julian. It's also the message I wanted to take away. Uh, who's your candidate? I don't mean a name. I mean, what kind of person? would be that that sort of person. You sketch out early in the book how, in a certain way, Gingrich was perfectly situated to do the things he did. Who would be situated to do that today in reverse? I think, I think these younger generation Democrats, actually, um, who not just the AOCs, who I think is quite skillful, but just that class, a lot of the um, candidates who, who won are generational change candidates. They have come of age seen what politics is through the lens that I'm writing about. This is the normal for them. So they're very clear-eyed on the kinds of changes that are necessary. They're very attuned to the structural problems that are behind a lot of what's going on. Uh, I think anyone from AOC to Katie Porter uh, could be really interesting candidates in the coming years uh, for being those figures. And we're still early in that story. But that's who I look to, even more than some of the presidential candidates we've discussed. Right, uh, Zachary, do do you find do you find this inspirational as as a young person who's really engaged and concerned about politics? Does this offer you uh, hope? I think it does, and I think what it really shows is is how these institutions evolve; that they never stay the same, and that means that we can have a real impact in our time on changing these institutions to to better fit how we think they should be serving us as citizens and voters. So, so on that note, Julian, last question: What advice do you give to young young men and women like Zachary, like your kids, to, uh, who care about this and, and want to make a difference and, and are not the AOCs themselves right now or the Katie Porters. What, what should they be doing? 
Well, the first thing to do, everyone of, of that age should be uh, tweeting at or writing to members of Congress to, to protect voting in November. I, I really, I tell audiences this all the time. This is the number one threat that we have to make sure that the basic part of our democratic process works. And, and young people in mass, not only do they need to vote, they need to be part of the effort to protect the vote. Uh, and we're really way behind right now with mail-in voting and the possible impact of the pandemic on, on voting. But then look, you don't, AOC is a great story because she wasn't AOC a few years ago. So for young people out there who are really uh, interested either in election, being elected or in being activists, uh, do it. Um, there's just a million stories. Even Gingrich didn't start as the person he became in terms of a power broker. Uh, that's the beauty of our democratic process. So take to the streets or uh, take to the campaign trail. Uh, but you know, don't wait for some other person to be that agent of change. I would tell younger people, uh, you know, you do it. It's a great message, Julian. It resonates with uh, our podcast over the last two years, which is very much about uh, grassroots uh, democratic change and how, it, in FDR's terms, right, the new chapter of our democracy is written by every new generation. And just the way you said, uh, I'm I'm proud to say that Zachary, even though he's only 15, has signed up to be an election worker uh, for just the reasons you you laid out. I hope many of our listeners will do the same. And I hope uh, all of our listeners will read your book. It's really uh, a book that adds a lot of insight, not simply in the rise of partisanship uh, and the workings of Congress, but also in the changes in American politics as a whole. Uh, So I really do hope that uh, our readers will read your book and uh, continue this conversation. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to both of you. I love this conversation. Well, and thank you to Zachary for your poem, of course. And thank you most of all to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.